So what I want to do now, uh, as is our custom, is just to take a moment, just a beat, to take a breath, to kind of gather ourselves, our scattered thoughts, and to prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word this morning. So let's do that, and then I'll pray for us. My gracious Heavenly Father, it is bitter cold outside. And our hearts can feel cold to you, to joy, to hope. Uh, And yet you mean to warm us by your word and with your love this morning. And so would you come and warm our hearts with the hope of the gospel uh, as we receive Uh, Your word this morning, would you meet with us uh, where we're at? Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is comfortable with our questions and our doubts. And as you call us to ask, seek, and knock in your direction this morning, uh, I pray that uh, you would open the door wide to receive us again. We praise you. We love you. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's an image, famous image of Jesus in the book of Revelation where he's standing at the door of our life, knocking. And we're the ones inside with the door closed, And we're supposed to open it and let him in. There's another image that Jesus gives us that's almost the opposite. We're at God's door. And it seems like it's closed. Because he asks us to knock. To ask, seek, and knock. And apparently, asking a question of God can be the key that opens the door to renewed experience with God. If you were to ask God a question this morning, what would it be? What would be the question that you had for Him? And I really want you to think about it. I want you to think about it so much that I had our office staff do extra work and put an insert into your bulletin. And on the back of that insert, what I would love this morning is for everyone to write their question down. Because when you come to the table, there's a basket. And I want you to bring your question to the Lord this morning and put it there and lay it at His feet. What would be the question that you would ask? Our scripture text comes from John chapter 20 this morning, and we'll be learning from Thomas, who knew how to ask questions. 
John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. God's Word. Now Thomas was one of the twelve called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When people heeded Jesus' invitation to come and see, they came with a lot of questions. Some came with doubts, some came with dilemmas, some brought problems. (laughs) Jesus received them all. And one of Jesus' most famous teachings is about what it means to bring all kinds of burdens and questions and quandaries to Him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is His magnum opus, uh, the sermon that He gave regularly as He traveled around uh, Israel, He concludes it by saying, Ask, seek, and knock. What a way to close a sermon. What if every sermon was closed with ask, seek, and knock? That's how he chose to close his sermon. He assumed that listening to him and following him would produce questions and puzzles. And he welcomes them. It's very different from the world that says, don't ask. Just believe. And that's how many of our churches are. Why are we so afraid of questions? I don't know. I just know that Jesus wasn't. Jesus looks at what you're confused about, what you want, what you're frustrated about, and says, let's start there. That's the stuff I want to talk to you about. It seems that he understands that questions energize our discipleship. 
They are what deepen faith. They cause doors to open. They help us to grow. Questions propel us forward. Not only deepening our faith, but allowing God to answer and to reveal His heart more fully to us. Example A, Thomas, patron of questions, patron saint of doubt, great question asker. When we think of Thomas, we often think about the text that I just read, which happens after the resurrection, but that's not the only time that Thomas asks a question in the Gospels. There's another scene in John 14, which is really, really lovely. So a bit of context. In John 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection, but he's doing it in a very Jesus way. You would have never known what he's talking about. It's just that he's going somewhere and he's going to prepare a place for them. So imagine you know nothing about the cross or the resurrection and then your Savior says this to you, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Really? Did they really know the way? His disciples didn't have the foggiest. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And I imagine them just nodding. Oh, yeah. We know the way. It's like being in the classroom and everyone has one single question and no one has the courage to ask it. And you're really hoping someone will ask the question. But then thank God for Thomas. Because Thomas asks what's on everyone's mind. Which is, where are you going? (laughs) And how will we know the way? What a daring question, a frank confession of ignorance and confusion, but look what it leads to. Look at Jesus' response, and Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the most profound sayings, most beloved sayings in all the scriptures, and it was the response to a question that Thomas asked. We would have never known that had Thomas not asked the question. Isn't that amazing? Thomas's question opens up new vistas for exploration, new levels of depth, provides some direction, and then provokes even more questions. 
And this isn't an isolated event. It's what we see play out on all the pages of the gospel. The drama of an individual's relationship with Jesus is propelled forward by the questions that they ask. Questions are just the wallpaper of the New Testament. They are the background to almost every story we cherish. And as questions are asked, Jesus' heart is revealed. Just some of the questions that we find in the Gospels. What sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How can a man be born if they're old? How can these things be? Where can I get this living water? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What must we do to be doing the works of God? What deeds must I do to gain eternal life? What does this man speak like? He is blaspheming. What is truth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? The father and mother whom we know? Has he come down from heaven? Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Teacher, where are you abiding? Teacher, don't you care that we are dying? Lord, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Asking. Seeking. Knocking. To read the New Testament is to be surrounded by questions and by disciples who took Jesus up on the invitation. Which means that reading our Bibles not only permits questions, it provokes them. In other words, if these questions weren't in your mind already, it puts the idea there. And it dares you to ask. In fact, the Bible gives us the language to ask the most difficult, hard, and genuine questions that a human being can ask about God and human existence. If you don't believe me, just read Ecclesiastes, Job, or the Psalms. It just seems... That we can only go so far in our search for truth if we don't allow questions to help us get there. We can only go so far in our discipleship if we're not honest with ourselves and God. And so the Bible anticipates our questions and gives us language to ask, seek, and knock. Is that your experience in the Christian church? When people ask questions, how does it make you feel? Parents, when your kids question God, Christianity, and faith, 
How does it make you feel? Can doubt and faith truly coexist in a family, in a church? Should they? Should it? It's the first question, I think, that gets answered in our scripture reading this morning. A little bit of background. Thomas wasn't there on Easter morning. He missed out on the extraordinary revelations that started so beautifully in the garden with Mary. And I'm sure that the enthusiastic uh, disciples, not least Peter, no doubt, would have wanted to explain things to him so that he'd understand what they'd experienced, they'd seen their risen Lord. And so they told him about it. And what did Thomas say? I don't believe it. And I won't believe it unless I have a personal encounter, one that has to do with touching the wounds of our risen Lord. So he expresses doubt. Consider all the ways that Peter, the leader of the church, could have responded. Peter, who was the leader of the community, could have easily at that point produced a set of creedal statements, a series of boxes to check, certain tests of orthodoxy and soundness of doctrine. And he could have said, well, Thomas, I'm afraid if you don't completely accept our version of the resurrection, then you don't really belong in our church. You see, this is a church of true believers. And we want everyone to be signed up and fully cognizant of everything that we believe here. And there's really no room for those types of questions. Not the kinds of questions that question the very central, foundational pillars of our faith. Peter could have done that. And he could have overlaid it with a sense of personal injury and hurt, saying, Are you calling me a liar? Are you calling Mary a liar? How dare you disbelieve? This is a matter of faith, of personal trust. If you can't buy into what we're saying, what we've experienced, then you could just show yourself the door. That could have happened. He could have just exploded in pain. Riding Thomas off as an unbeliever. As if this moment of honest doubt would define his belief forever. But notice what actually happens. Verse 26. It's an exceptional verse in the scriptures. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Think of that. What an amazing, exceptional idea. Couple things about that verse. Thomas was with them. Thomas stayed. 
That's not what would have happened in our cultural moment. The minute minute someone experiences real doubt in our moment, they take to Instagram. Cue Instagram deconversion photo. Young person, beanie on head, pensive look in the background, mountains there, saying they've left the faith. Comments below saying how much courage it must have taken to leave their faith behind as if leaving the faith isn't the easiest possible thing to do and where all the cultural winds are blowing. The much harder thing to do is to stay and to ask and to seek and to knock. As a pastor, I've watched friends in the church over the years grow disappointed or skeptical, often for completely understandable reasons. But instead of remaining in an apostolic church or a believing community, sharing unbelief in their questions with us, sharing unbelief with the same candor that belief was shared with them, the instinct is to withdraw. To to find safety with folks with matching disappointments or skepticisms. I guess just what I want to say about that is that's not Thomas's choice. That's not what Thomas did. Finding a community that's based around doubt and skepticism may be comforting for a moment. But a community that affirms you without ever challenging you. It may make you feel comfortable for a time, but it will never move you. And I would offer that it will never heal you. He could have walked away from the disciples, but he stayed. And I want to say that staying was a courageous act. And why did Thomas stick around? Well... If this Jesus thing was true, for him it was worth the risk. And he believed that Jesus was ever going to show up. He was going to show up with those ragamuffins that he'd loved and chosen. Notice that the believers didn't offer the answers to his doubt. They kept believing until he could meet with Jesus who was present In their midst. Their fellowship held him until he could meet the risen Jesus, the only one who could answer his doubts and his questions. He stayed, and the community welcomed him. Sociologists tell us that the reason why young people are walking away from the church, not just young people, But the number one reason stated is that the church is not a safe place to ask their questions. Number two, it's not a safe place to feel depression, anxiety, or angst. And they're not leaving the search for God, they're just going someplace else other than the church to ask their questions. 
When I, I did a series on deconstruction a couple of years ago, and I just remember a study that I read that said one of the factors, it just listed factors of people, especially young people, who maintained belief in college and afterwards. And the thing that stuck in my head was uh, one of the things that was true of all of them is that they knew at least six or seven adult Christians who wrestled with their faith and told them about it. They had touch points. So think about that. What they stated about the community of Christians wasn't that they had six or seven other Christians who didn't morally fail them. And they didn't say, we had, I had touch points with six or seven other Christians who never doubted. What they needed to get through was touch points with six or seven honest people living out faith amidst doubt and struggle. Where is Thomas? In his deep doubt and pain, he is with the community of Christians there together. And I just think that that's something worth thinking about. He's allowed. He's welcomed. What if the best place to doubt your faith was in the presence of other Christian people? Wouldn't it be amazing that the best friend you had or your grandchild or your child or your niece or your nephew felt that they could, that the most welcoming and invigorating spot to seek Jesus would be the church? Or if not the church, what about your living room? Maybe you don't have a living room. What about just your heart? Your presence. They hold this place for Thomas, it's just something that they learned from their teacher, Jesus, who spoke parables and only opened up the interpretation for those who stuck around. So here they are, waiting on the presence of Jesus together. And the last thing I want us to see this morning is just Thomas's request. Because I think it gets to the heart of our most pressing questions. One of the most beautiful short verses in the Bible is Jude 1.22. And it just says, have mercy on those who doubt. My thing is, why mercy? Be patience, steadfastness, have answers for those who doubt. But it's have mercy, why? Why? Because what's the sort of of our deepest doubts? It's pain. Trauma. Affliction. Disillusionment. Hardship. Behind most of our doubts is the very personal question, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken us? Why did this happen to me? Given all the suffering in this world, given what we've experienced, is God good? What can come of all that we've been through, all the pain and hardship, all the wounds and scars? And I think Thomas understands this because notice what he asks to see. Not God's glory, Not his triumph 
over the Romans, but his wounds. He needs to know what God can do with wounds. Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Why does he have to go inside? I think he doesn't, he needs to know that there, it's not cold, that it's truly life, not a ghost, not a specter, something living that's been through death. He's driven by this question. Can I see God bring life out of the midst of death? Think about what he'd seen. Nails driven into his source of hope. His Savior pierced. He'd seen things he would never want to see. And you've been made to see things you never wanted to see. He's made to wait eight days. (laughs) I don't know why he was made to wait. I just know that that's how it works. But notice this. After the long wait, he finally gets his answer. And Jesus gives him everything he's asked for. And in this moment of incredible intimacy, Jesus asks Thomas to put his fingers in the scars and to reach out and touch him. It is intimate. I don't know if any of you have scars on your body. Have you ever had a child or a grandchild or a friend ask to touch the scar? It's an intimate thing for someone to touch a wound that you have. But it's happening there. I'm going to have John put up a, a painting. This is a painting by Caravaggio. And I want us to see, that's Thomas. And what I love about this painting is Jesus is taking Thomas' hand and he's leading it in. In this welcoming way, look at the look of astonishment of Thomas and the rest of the disciples. Jesus is saying, I know you were waiting for a Savior who would bear death. For a Savior who would enter a world of death and provide hope. But I want you to not only hope, I want you to know, Thomas, I am that Savior. Touch it. Feel it. See it. I want you to feel these scars. Why? Partly to show Thomas that he really died, but also to show him that in the midst of death, life abides. Because you know what Thomas felt when he felt inside the body. Not death, life, warmth, vitality, incontestable life. His scars now transformed into a source of healing and hope. Thomas intuits something profound. That if salvation is going to be salvation, it's not going to be pretending that 
suffering isn't there. Or imagining that it never occurred or overriding it in some way. It's going to be about redeeming it and transforming it. Not forgetting it. What happens to us, particularly what happens to us when we're hurt by the world, is a profound part of who we are. And it can often seem that those experiences will only always hinder us. But here is a gospel that says, ultimately, even our wounds can be transformed to be a source of healing. And we see it happen Even in this life, before a final resurrection, we see people who have passed through times of hurt and suffering and in whom we can still see, as it were, visibly in other ways, the marks of the scars, but whose pain and hurt somehow have become to someone else a source of wisdom, a source of connection, a fount of blessing to others. And we see it profoundly in the person of Jesus, supremely in him, a man whose wounded hands and torn side becomes the source of healing for the world. Thomas sees it, feels it, and exclaims, You are my Lord, you are my God. Everything I hoped for was true. It's actually true. I'm sure that Thomas still had some doubts. But his greatest questions were answered. And knowing that, his Savior had risen. He could trust him with the rest. Let me just close out the passage. Have you, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What is Jesus saying there? Is he, is he going back on you shouldn't ask questions at that point? No. He just knows that Thomas got an experience with the risen Christ that many of us don't get to have. And so at this moment, Jesus looks over Thomas's shoulder and starts talking to people who aren't in the room. He starts talking to us and he calls us blessed. The ones who are hanging on, <laughs> waiting our eight days or eight years or eight seasons of days to get to have the kind of experience that Thomas had. Waiting in faith, but not blindly. Waiting with stories like this one in tow. And the hope that comes with them. And with Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock. Two questions for you this morning. What question do you need to ask to propel your discipleship forward? Write it down. Bring it up front. Put it in the basket. Just give it to the Lord in your heart. What do you need to ask? And if that question is why, write it down. Jesus gave you full permission. He himself asked why. Why have you forsaken me? If that doesn't give you an open door, 
to be able to ask, seek, and knock. I don't know what does. And let's hide all of our wounds in His. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the the kind of God that in sending the second person of the Trinity to come and save and preach, that he would end his sermons with an invitation uh, to continue to ask and seek and knock in your direction with the promise that you are a loving and kind Heavenly Father and that our questions can be like keys opening up so many doors uh, to renewed faith and hope, uh, to new vistas of exploration, new opportunities uh, to connect or to confess. And so, Lord, I think that every one of us could be helped by asking a very real question of you. And let me pray for that siren very quickly. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on whatever situation um, is being attended to by those professionals? We pray that in Christ's name. And Lord, I pray that you would tend to us in our uh, doubt. Um, I pray for those who are doubting and that they'd stick around. And I pray that you would continue to make yourself known um, in little gatherings of Christians like this one. And I pray that our church might be a place where people can ask the questions that they need to ask in your direction. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.